Hey all, welcome to the Common Good Podcast. So excited to have you part of our regular conversation here from Vote Common Good. Today, we're going to be talking with Josh Scott and Colby Martin. They're both pastors. They both come from a conservative evangelical backgrounds and now are progressive pastors. And I wanted to chat with them about what that journey was like, what were the triggers that helped them to move and, and how has that gone for them? Colby is a pastor of a church called Sojourn Grace Collective in San Diego, and Josh is the pastor of Grace Point Church in Nashville. They're both really well known for their um, ideas and for their churches, and I think that they represent the movement that a lot of people are a part of, people who've come from a conservative or evangelical background, and now are thinking about different ways to live and be in the world. I really appreciate uh, both of their uh, work and their spirits and their clarity. Uh, you can find them on the websites for their churches or um, you know, in the show notes here. You can find them, uh, but please do uh, follow them, look them up. And if you have other people in your life who are thinking about making a theological shift or are already in the middle of one, people like Josh and Colby can be really helpful to them. So here's our conversation with Colby Martin from Sojourn Grace Collective and Josh Scott from Grace Point Church in Nashville. Josh, Colby, so glad to have you. Thanks, uh, thanks for doing this. Uh, Colby, uh, let's let's start with you. Um, your journey uh, to where you are now, someone who writes books, who runs a great YouTube channel, and a, uh, I guess a weekly uh, a weekly Substack email yeah. that, that comes out, and are very public about trying to be in progressive spaces. But that's not where you were. I don't know, ten years ago, twenty years yeah. ago. Yeah. We were just, uh, you know, when you, when you were a twenty year old, I don't think you were hanging around the the progressive Christian spaces, if I remember your story right. <laughs> this is correct. Uh, hey, Doug. Hi, Josh. Oh man, it's so good to be hey. here with you too. As soon, uh, when we were doing the warm up tech portion, I flash back to when we all met at Marco Island, Florida. Uh, what seven years ago? Eight years ago? Something like that. And the the memory that came to mind, Doug, for better or worse, uh, was standing in the kitchen one night and your wife, Shelly, was there. And Shelly comes in and I'm meeting Shelly for the first time. And I tell her that I have four boys at home. And uh, you know, she talks about the fact that you raised boys as well. And for some reason, Douglas, we got on the topic of the toilet. And Shelly said that one of the best things that she ever did as a parent was to train uh, and have all all genders in your home sit down to urinate at the bathroom because if you don't if you have boys i mean you are just cleaning toilet nonstop, and it smells yeah. so bad so i just want to say thank you because i came home from that trip not only with new friends like josh but also with this idea like hey guys what if everybody sits to pee in the martin household and it has been revolutionary and how so. have they gone have they have the boys stuck with it oh at yeah least? oh totally yeah I, I empower them when they're out and about you know you can stand yeah. and use urinals when you're out in public but at home everybody everybody and it's just it's a game changer so all if, if there's no other takeaways from today uh parents of, of young boys do not be afraid to just have yes. them sit pee. it'll change your life yeah. and one of the great things about most of our <laughs> houses is that our bathrooms are close enough to a living area you can hear people when they're not seated uh and just and the yell, accountability is real uh -huh. you just yell in the bathroom <laughs> sit down we have uh, done it on so many occasions okay can i just tag on to that story for a minute please yeah uh one of those people that we raised in our family we had four children as well three of them were boys and one of those uh, lives in New York now. He's a 30-year-old man. 
And I was at his apartment with his fiance and I went in to use their bathroom and I yelled out from the bathroom to his fiance, yes, I am sitting. I promise you, I am sitting trying to bring the next generation of families along to this. That was literally 48 hours ago that that, that, that happened. It's, it's one of the great choices. I love and there's this the weird smoke. mythology about how like for men, they feel like it, it's somehow emasculating, which I hate that term anyways, but like it's somehow it's emasculating yeah. to be. And I always want to say, so wait a minute. When you go to do number two, are you telling me that first you stand <laughs> to get right. it all out there and then you sit? No. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, this is not, no. I don't think why you brought us all. No, we should just, everyone should just sit down for it all. Okay. Well, uh, great beginning. Uh, so when we were in, yeah, we, we ended up in Marco Island. A bunch of people yes. were getting together. People are yeah. following a similar, maybe not a similar, you know, uh, personal needs pattern, but at least a similar theological pattern. We all ended up in that place together. If I remember right, I think you were even new to some, to your own realization that the story of faith you had come through was not serving you well at that point and maybe not, hadn't even served you as well previously. But can you talk a bit about that, that journey that you've gone through and tell us, you know, what, what's important to know about Sojourn Grace Collective. Yeah, sure. So I was, uh, I was born and raised in a Baptist home and grew up in a super conservative environment. And eventually we sort of transitioned out of the Baptist world because my parents got a divorce. Uh, and the Baptist world is one of the worst places for a lot of things. And one of those is divorced families. And so we found uh, just kind of a generic evangelical non-denomination church. And when I had this impactful moment as a senior in high school where I felt really uh, called as the language I would have used back, used back then, called to go into ministry and to become a pastor and kind of give my life to this work. Uh, I followed in the footsteps of my cousin who had gone to a Baptist college in Salem, Oregon, and got my pastoral ministry degree there. And I should tell you, um, for what it's worth, that I was really good at it. <laughs> I was really good at uh, evangelical theology, apologetics, um, Bible scholarship and interpretation, like these were things that not only fit sort of my skill set naturally, but coupled with my passions, like this was, these were things that I really uh, excelled at. And I only say that not because I, you know, there's nothing interesting about that other than to say, and Josh, I know you get this a lot too, that now as we occupy these progressive faith spaces, the number of times we sort of get told by uh, those who maybe are, are still on the more conservative side of the spectrum, uh, told to like, just go read your Bible or, um, <laughs> or, or, or some implication that we have not done the work uh, that they are doing, like that we haven't been there. It, it's, it's a strange sort of, uh, I don't know if it's gaslighting or some sort of weird version of gaslighting, but it's like, bro, and usually it is bro, bro, <laughs> I could... I can make your arguments for you and maybe even a little better. So anyway, um, I was really good at it up until the point where, um, as you said, Doug, it sort of stopped making sense, sort of stopped working within the world that I was living in. And it's hard to really put my finger on when that was because it was kind of a, a slow, I would say, mm -hmm. two to three year process of, I liken it to a Jenga tower and and. The, the blocks are the things that we have believed or, or been told to believe over the years. And eventually we get to a point where we start taking the blocks out and inspecting them and deciding, is this one that I want to keep? Maybe, but I'm going to twist it and turn it a little bit and set it on top. Or is this one that just altogether is 
I, I can't do this one anymore. Uh, and then for some people, they end up pulling enough blocks where the whole thing crumbles and they don't know what to do. But for me, it was about a two or three year process. And it started, I think, with the Bible. It started with really trying to go deeper into the heart of what is the Bible and how did we get it and how do we read it and how do we understand it? How do we interpret it, apply it, et cetera. And the more that I did that, you know, I, I would say now the higher view of scripture that I have, which my evangelical siblings would not appreciate that language, the, the, the higher view of scripture that I have, the more it led me away from these conservative Baptist evangelical roots uh, because I could no longer take this book as though it were this perfectly uh, authored collection of timeless truths as though God, uh, you know, himself were just sort of animating human meat puppets to create a, a, a perfect book. It's just, it's not what it is. And yet so much of my previous iteration of Christianity, i.e. evangelicalism, was built upon that as the foundation. And so the whole goal is to know the right things, believe the right things, uh, and hold on to them with absolute certainty. Yeah. And the more I dug into the Bible, I realized, oh, these are not, these are not tenable positions to, to hold any longer. Well, that's really great. Uh, and, and I think, you know, tracks with, with a lot of people and they're thinking, Josh, how about you? Do you remember your, your background of when something flipped for you, when something changed? And then, and then Colby, I want to come back and sort of talk about some key moments and, and what you did in those moments of, because we all, we all have choices along the way when, when we see transition happening in our lives transitions don't happen without our participation a lot like change does but transition doesn't right and um, so we can talk about that that in a bit but Josh give us the give us the scale of your your background and just yeah so well, first of all Colby I know exactly what you're talking about one of my, the things that always gets me is when somebody posts on something I've written and they'll say yeah but did you look at this verse and I just want to say yeah I've heard uh, yeah yeah, I've heard of it. I'm aware it exists. Um, you know, my journey is kind of similar in that I grew up Baptist. I, we started out Free Will Baptist. My grandfather was a Free Will Baptist pastor. And, you know, Free Will Baptist, at least our version in the holler in Eastern Kentucky where I grew up, was you didn't know who was going to preach on Sunday morning, what songs were going to be sung. It was sort of all, you know, supposed to be Holy Spirit driven. And so um, when my grandpa died, um, and I had some, some real significant loss in my life around that, around the age of 11. And um, when he passed, we went liberal and joined a Southern Baptist church. And that was a liberal, liberal shift. Um, and so, you know, but when I describe sort of my process to people, I say, you know, it began really early. It began when I was around 11, 12 years old. The seeds were planted. And I, I wasn't aware of it at the time. I didn't know what was happening. But it was really in my early 20s, um, and I sort of I broke some of the rules I was told not to break. I, I took uh, Bible classes at a public university. Um, I, I started talking to other people. I started reading books that weren't just the Bible or, you know, weren't prescribed by our church. And I started meeting people, people who have no religion, people of other religions, people who were, um, you know, identify as LGBTQ+. And what I started experiencing was that um, there, there are really good people everywhere and like people who are doing really good things in the world and people who, when I was with them, even though they didn't share my label or my interpretation, I still could experience what I would have said at the time was like the presence of God, the, uh, the spirit of God, whatever, um, working in them and through them. 
And so for me, primarily, like I, I love the Bible. I grew up with the Bible. Um, but for me, it started with experience that then led me back to the Bible. And I had to begin to try to reread and reimagine and reinterpret, which I think is like the pattern you see. One of my favorite stories in the New Testament is when Peter has the vision of the scroll and he's like, it challenges sort of his whole understanding of who he is and what he's doing in the world. And it causes, you know, those early Jesus followers, it caused them to go back to the text and to reimagine what could be going on and to see that there's space here. And so that was my journey was um, having experiences that then would send me back to the Bible to go, what do I do with this? Because I, I think this was a real experience. I think that this, the divine was somehow a part of that and a part of that person, a part of what they're doing in the world. And it doesn't fit any of the categories that I've been given. And so I had to, I had to just, the categories had to change. All right. So both of you were good at what you were doing. You were working pastors, like you were involved in communities. You had people that trusted you and depended on you. You had your own faith that was supposed to be, you know, uh, alive and personal for you. It's one of the things that you sort of hope anyone that does this kind of work also feels that they're, they're in the, the, the movements that they're that they're talking about and then this change starts happening and this invitation to to transition to transform and to become something more and uh, i don't want to put words in your mouths but i think i've heard this from both of you enough times i think this is accurate uh, that you wanted to keep growing and you sort of reached a point where you had to decide am i going to continue down the path of growth or am i going to make other choices and we should all be clear, there's a lot of reasons to make other choices. Like like one of those choices could be to change your theological and, and ministry notions and ideas. The other is just to leave the thing altogether. I mean, just to get out, right? And decide like, hey, I got in under one set of understandings and stories. That's changed. I can't do this work any longer. I'm going to now make a shift. Can you talk about when you reach those moments? Um uh, Colby, maybe you go first. Uh, was there a couple of moments you can describe where you felt that fork in the road, that moment of choice, that thing where, hey, I can either work on this and, and work on transformation and transition, or I can just say, hey, things have changed and I'm out and, and I'm not doing this anymore, or, or just stayed, stayed home where, where you were. And I know in your situation, it wasn't as easy just to stay where you were because you said some things that caused some people in your world to, to disinvite you from doing your old life with them. But you can, I guess you can talk about as much of that as, as you want to. I know you've written a lot about that in your own, in your books and so on. So. Yeah. So in, uh, in 2011, I was working at a church in Arizona as their worship and arts pastor. And I'd been there for about five years at the time. And at that point I had, I'd done a fair bit of taking that Jenga uh, tower apart and really evaluating and, and, sh and shifting on a lot of beliefs. I mentioned sort of my posture towards the Bible as, as the beginning, but, um, you know, as the years went on, some other significant ones fell, such as uh, the sense that, the, that a loving God would at all permit, let alone send uh, human beings to some sort of eternal torment when they mm -hmm. die. So, but, but I was in a context, Doug, uh, where I really wasn't, I would, I would say it wasn't safe to really talk about those things. And um, so I kept a lot of them to myself, mm -hmm. like sort of mm -hmm. on the inside, like, oh, I don't really believe these things anymore. So as the worship leader, I'm like subtly changing some of the lyrics to the songs, hoping nobody notices too much. Um, yeah. oh. I remember reading a story, I think it's in 2 Kings chapter 5, the story of Nahum, who was like this uh, 
attendant to a general of some pagan foreign place. And he come, they come to Israel and he ends up having this transformative experience and, and comes to worship Yahweh as the one true God. But then he's really anxious about going back to work with his people because he's like, when we go to the temple, I'm going to have to like worship these other gods, the gods that I grew up with. And, uh, I forget if it was Elijah or Elisha basically says to Nahum, um, go in peace, which is to say like, it's all right. Go, go, go continue to serve your master and worship at your gods. Um, my paraphrase might be like, Yahweh's cool with it. Like he understands. And so I, that was like a super comforting story for me for many years to live in this place of lack of alignment where my internal convictions were one thing, but my external reality was pretty different. But I think there's a expiration date for that hmm. kind of reality. I think at some point we, we are not designed to operate at that level of misalignment for that long. And that all sort of broke for me, you alluded to it a minute ago, that all sort of broke for me in 2011 when Obama repealed the don't ask, don't tell military ban against uh, gay people serving. And I posed, and at that point, I one of the blocks that I had evaluated was um, really looking at the Bible, what does it say and not say about homosexuality? Mm -hmm. And discovering for the first time that, man, we have gotten that issue totally wrong. Like the church has been way off on its misuse of using like six verses to justify discrimination against LGBTQ people. But again, didn't tell nobody. Like that's one that you just keep to yourself. And, uh, but when the repeal was signed, I put it on my Facebook, uh, glad this day finally came, just sort of talking about the repeal, not really kind of, kind of naive and or ignorant to like the way that that was basically signaling to the church community that, oh, I guess Colby has a different theology on sexuality. And that led to an emergency board meeting a couple of days later where I was forced to give my theology on sexuality. So I finally told like, yeah, by the way, I'm like totes cool with gay people, um, which I think I might've said it more eloquently than that. But honestly, looking <laughs> back, I wish I would have just walked in and said that. that. I would have saved everybody a bunch of time. Um, <laughs> and they fired me a couple of days later uh, on the spot. And, so that sort of cemented for me that the evangelical world mm -hmm. was not a place for me any longer. Uh, and I sort of knew that internally. Like it's, it's so interesting for me, Doug, to hear you continue to say that you do use that term. Like it's probably as confusing for me to hear you say that as it is for <laughs> conservative people to hear me say, I'm a Christian. And they're like, no, yeah. you're not. Stop saying that. Um, yeah. yeah, that's not my world anymore. And they, they, they showed me the door and I walked through it kicking and screaming only because my livelihood was attached to it. You know, like being fired meant we had to sell our home, which has set us in yeah. a financial pit that we still haven't recovered from 12 years later. Uh, like uh, we lost our community. We lost everything. Like, we had to move back home to Oregon and kind of lick our wounds and figure out what was next. So it was a, not a real ceremonious uh, exit. And yet I would do it all again, 117 times. You know what I mean? Like it was the best thing that's ever happened to me. Yeah, well, I, I want to hear. I want to hear you talk more about that in a minute here, because not everyone would, and some people would think I just need to find a different career, right? I don't want to be a pastor or a leader or an organizer. Like then you just turned around and went off and started something, <laughs> uh, a, a church, right? Yeah. Like a lot of people would say, if I'm in all this transition, I I don't think I'm the right person to do this. Partly because a lot of us think that what makes you a pastor is that you've 
mastered something. Like we even offer degrees that carry that kind of terminology. You get a master's in theology or a master's in divinity. So it seems as if you've mastered it. Where if you're in this deep transition, people are like, well, what are you doing leading things? You know, and some people don't want to go to churches like this, like watching YouTube videos where the person says, actually, I've never tested this thing I'm going to do right now and I'm going to see if it works. You're like, I don't want to watch that video, you know? Uh, so that that's a that's a whole narrative that I think is really interesting that you wanted other people to stay with you in that transition. And Josh, I know that's true for you as well, that as you went through this transition, you were doing it live in front of people, sometimes on a week by week basis with all the pressures of being a working pastor in a small rural community. Uh, so can you, can you tell us about that story and, and that, that arc for you and, and how that happened? Yeah, gosh. So I pastored before Grace Point. I pastored a church in a small town called Morgantown, Kentucky. And I was there for 14 years. I started when I was 23. And when I took the job, I was full on unraveling. I, I just really, like all the years of all the little seeds that were planted over the years started to germinate. And I'm suddenly going, oh, so I have to get up and preach every Sunday. And I'm increasingly having difficulty with the things people are expecting me to preach. And this is a really conservative <laughs> church. And I really... Like if, you know, we talk about red states, like whatever the deepest shade of red, this little town, uh, it was then, right? And it's even more so now. And so I found myself getting up and saying things. And for a while, and this was, looking back, I have some regret around this. But at the time, I was in my early 20s and just trying to survive. Or I could learn to say things in a way that if somebody in the, in the community was, had a progressive lean, they could, they could hear it through that lens. But then somebody who didn't, they sort of could interpret it through their own sort of more conservative filter. And that, that caught up with me after a while. And, um, and there were people eventually who, were, when they were asking me to be explicit, like, what, do you, what are you actually saying? And I would say it. There was some hurt there, and it was actually justified. Um, but at the time, I was just trying to survive as a pastor. But eventually, um, when I realized we had I'd sort of hit a tipping point, this would probably have been 2014 or so. Like I hit a tipping point and I was saying things and, but I realized like I, I need to lay all the cards out. And so we had elders at this church and I just, at one of our meetings, I said, can we just sit down and let me tell you everything I think right now about these really critical issues about, um, you know, a, a human sexuality, about atonement theory, about all of the stuff. And so we had this meeting where I just sort of vomited out on everybody. And at the end I was like, so look, uh, I realize this may not be the journey of this community, um, but it is my journey and I have to take it. So if this is not the journey of this community, then I'll resign and you can find another pastor and I can go do what I need to do. And to their credit, to a person, every one of them said, no, this is going to be our journey as a community. Now, a year later, like most of them were gone. <laughs> um, they, they, didn't, they didn't stick around to make the journey we were going to make together. But, you know, for me, it was very much about, I, like, here's the thing. I'm a Christian, regardless of what people on the internet say. <laughs> and I, I'm going to be a Christian. Like, th at this point, there's, there's no gotcha for me on that. Like, it, there's no, like, there's something they could tell me about the Jesus story or about Jesus or that something wasn't literal that would make me go, okay, now I'm out. Um, so I'm a Christian. I'm going to be a Christian until I leave this world. Um, 
And what I realized is I love the Bible. I love being a part of a community. And what I was finding is there were lots and lots of people who felt that way too. They had just been so deeply wounded by the Bible or by the way people use the Bible. And they've been so deeply wounded by communities that I thought, what if I could actually use my energy to help people? Not people who, I think there are people who have left. They've left religion, they've left Christianity, they've left the Bible, and they've done it for good reason and they needed to do it. It was the right thing to do because the amount of trauma and pain that had been inflicted on them, there was just no reconciling it. What I think my, the way I see my contribution to the world right now is that for those who have experienced those wounds, who have lost the Bible, feel like they've lost their faith because it's been taken from them, they have grief around it. I want to help them come back to it and reimagine it. Mm. Wow, that's, that's so well said. You know, Josh, that question, um, I want to tell, or that statement you made to your the leaders of the church, I want, to, I want to tell you all the things that I am thinking about this now. That's really gutsy. I, you know, I was a pastor of a church called Solomon's Porch for 20 years, and I had the privilege of starting that church. And some people think, well, if you start a church, then you have a totally different circumstance than if you inherit one. And I think that's probably true for the first hour and a half, maybe, that you've started the church. <laughs> and at some point, you begin to realize you're not the only one here. You don't get to just run the show. There's a lot of other people that are going to have input. And the pressures of we've, we've never done it that way before are just as evident week two of a new church start as they are week you know, 200 of, of a church that's been around for four years. So... It's just the case that, that, you know, you don't have a wide open playing field. And I remember feeling that pressure, right? I know people liked our church and it was meaningful to so many of us. And I didn't want to ruin it as I was going through not only my own theological progression, but just change in what I thought about things and things that I had said previously after, you know, when you do this for 20 years, like I did, you just sort of change your mind on some stuff. And you're like, I know I said this a few years ago and people are like, well, it was actually 14 years ago uh, that you said that, but I've changed on that now. And, and I was always worried because I didn't want to only have people follow my journey, right? Trying to have a church where people's, where the point was that people's spirituality was taking them in their own directions. And we wanted to be collaborators with them in that process. It's really hard. And I remember one point, some people were sitting around, we did a lot of dialogue and a lot of discussion-based teaching and thinking together. And people saying like, well, just, just tell us everything you think about this stuff. You know, like, you know, I'm kind of, kind of interested. I'm like, oh, I'm not telling you everything I think about this stuff. Like, uh, not because I didn't think that it was, that I wasn't hiding it. I just didn't feel like all of it was ready to be out in the, in the communal relationship of pastor to other participants in the church, you know, and we tried really hard to make the church not be a hierarchical one, which I know you guys do an even better job than we were trying to do, but it's still hard. Right. But, but that idea that as a leader, there's something you feel like you're going through these changes and you don't always want to let that all out all the time. Can you, can either of you talk about that? Is that something that you've, you've experienced or still experience? And how do you, how, how do you think about it? Bringing people along to where you are at any given moment? Yeah. Uh, so my wife, uh, her name's Kate. We started our church together as co-pastors and we have been talking recently. I'm going to use the term deconstruction, which I, I, I use less and less now because it, 
it's kind of gotten away from us and I, I don't really know what I what it means anymore. But one of the things that we have discovered is that in this kind of post conservative, post evangelical space that a lot of us find ourselves in, people have done a significant amount of work sort of deconstructing uh, theology and ideas around God and the Bible, uh, sexuality that we've mentioned. But one thing that hasn't yet really gotten a lot of airtime is uh, deconstructing the role of what a pastor is. And I, and I mean that both as the people occupying that role and those who are in community with them, other than maybe like, hey, pastors shouldn't be misogynistic assholes, right? So, so, and pastors should look differently. Like there should be diversity within that role. Like that's about as far as we've taken it. But I still think there, and this is not a knock on anyone in church communities like ours or yours, Josh's. Um, it's not anyone's fault necessarily, but I still think there is residual subconscious expectation that we as a community are going to sort of share the same beliefs that our pastors do. Yeah. And so our church sojourn from the beginning, we knew we didn't necessarily have the words to articulate it like I just did, but we knew we had to uh, put up guardrails against that kind of culture from happening. So we did things like we never created a belief statement. So Sojourn to this day doesn't have a belief. Like you can't find a list of what we believe because what does that mean? Who's the we in that state in the statement of what we believe? You could put me and Kate as the founding co-pastors and map out our beliefs if we could even figure that out. And they're, they're going to be super different. Um, and that we assume that's going to be reflected in our community as well. So if you go to our webpage right now, when you go to like what we believe, what you're going to find is it says, here's what we believe about you. <laughs> that we believe that you are a love child of God. We believe that you are full of beauty and power and potential. Things, nice. things like that. So we knew that we couldn't have a belief statement. Um, and I try to, I don't know, every other sermon that I give or message or whatever we call them. I try to remind people like, um, please do not just believe what I'm saying. Like for reals, like if anything sounds good and it resonates with you, that's great. Take it. If it doesn't, if it doesn't work for you, if you don't like it, if it doesn't feel good in your body, then just let it, I hope you forget it as soon as I say it. Uh, so we're trying to do some things, Doug, but man, it's, it's tough because there is still, we all came from this culture where the goal of Christianity was to believe the right things and then lock it down. Mm -hmm. And we expected our religious leaders to be the ones to help us know the right answer when the SAT finally comes. And so to shift that entire culture to be like, let's just move away from the idea of correct belief and move into some other uh, things of what it means to be a, a human. Um, yeah, that's, that's, it's, it's a tough role that I still yeah. mm -hmm. am figuring out. Josh, how about you? What's what, what's it been like as you've wondered about your own theological and just opinion journey? I mean, sometimes stuff isn't even... A lot of the fights that people have in churches and a lot of the struggles they have with leaders and leaders have with people in their churches, it's not always about like deep theological stuff. It's just about <laughs> things they think about the world, right? It's the much more, much more right. mundane thing. And it would be great like if there was... Um, if if the Bible or some other scriptures were you could be used in such a way as to be the thing you need and all you need, but they're just not made of such yeah. material. You know, you they don't answer everything. They're not intended to. They're they're, right. they're just they're better than that. So you're always just forming opinions about stuff. Some of which matter. Some that you kind of hold really passionately for a while. Some that you think you're going to let go of and they end up sticking around for a long time. So belief is a really 
uh, and kind of our take on the world. It's just a really curious, curious thing. How have you worked on bringing people in and through that in, in your role of being someone who's a leader? What you just mentioned, one of the things I do is I try to use the language of like opinion or sometimes when somebody asks me a question, I'll say, do you want to know what I think? Um, and, and I want to be very clear. I'm not telling you what God thinks. I, I can remember growing up and hearing preachers give these sermons and saying, well, listen, if you have a problem with this, you don't have a problem with me. You have a problem with God because God wrote the Bible, which is like talk about infinite grab for power and authority that you haven't earned to speak into somebody's life. Mm-hmm. And so I just try to be very clear. I'm going to tell you what I think about this. Now, I think my opinion most of the time, if I'm speaking on theology, like if I don't know anything about it, I will just honestly say to people, you need to ask somebody else. I don't know anything about that. But if, I mean, it's, it's an educated opinion. I'm not just like sitting around going, you know, I just think I'll think this about that today. Like I've, my, where I've landed has been hard won in some ways, but also still very um, flexible. So one of the things I did at the church in Kentucky was uh, I did a sermon about this very thing, about beliefs. And I passed out um, an index card and a pencil and a Sharpie to everybody. And I said, okay, at the beginning, what I want you to do, I want you to write down right now what your beliefs are that are in Sharpie. You can't imagine them ever changing. It's a core part of you. And then everything that is up for grabs is in pencil. And what people found is there was way more in pencil than there was in Sharpie. But when you actually start, like when you just start arguing with somebody on the internet, it seems like everything's Sharpie, right? Like it seems everything is written in stone by the finger of God. Um, and so I think the reality is being able to invite people into, no, actually what we're dealing with here are opinions because there is no objective reality from which anybody can stand and speak. So every time I give a sermon, I am telling you what I think about a thing, what my opinion is about a thing. And that opinion is subject to change. The way I describe, um, and, and this is part of the problem with inerrancy and the infallibility of the Bible, when people believe that and hold that doctrine so closely, is what they don't realize is that, for example, Paul in those se- uh, seven genuine letters, his opinion shifts over time, right? Because what he's doing, what they're doing in the Bible is not writing a systematic theology. They're building the plane while they fly it. They're like trying to, to navigate and tear duct tape to put the wing back on. And that's, that's what they're doing. And so what you were describing, like your opinion's changing. And yeah, I said that 14 years ago, but that's not today. Like, I think we see that happening. So I, I think the permission of the tradition should be um, to continually reimagine and reframe and come back to previous statements and beliefs we've had and say, gosh, I don't really see it that way anymore because doctrines really should be placeholders, right? They're, they shouldn't be set in stone. It should be, this is where we're at right now. We reserve the right to completely scrap this and do something else later. Yeah, and for a lot of us, we see that as a real, real benefit, a real feature. Uh, there's a lot of people who see it as a flaw, right? And I get it. Like they think nobody wants to be instructed or taught a way of faith that's going to be that's going to have a you know an ex- expiration date on it. That's going to time out. They they don't think that you know you should think of your Christian faith like you do some software update that's going to get an update later and is going to change. And I get it that people would would like that, and and yeah. those those theologies are available. Um, it's just they don't really work very well. And anyone who um, and, and it just doesn't fit like human ability or human uh, development. Like yeah. I've watched people that I know really well who have changed in so many great ways, but then in their faith they don't change at all. 
I actually know some people for whom they've changed a lot in their faith and their practices don't change at all. You know, there's, 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 there's that thing too. Um, but it just feels more like there's a developmental side. Colby, it felt like you were going to say something there. But. Yeah. I, I, I loved that uh, practice you did, Josh, with your, with your community of the Sharpie and the pencil. And immediately what came up for me as you said that is even within the Bible. And again, I, I come bring back to the Bible because the people in our community that you described, that's really important to them. And I understand that within the Bible, you see Sharpies, uh, you see Sharpie, um, what am I trying to say? Sharpie beliefs or Sharpie ideas. You see them change. And the one that came to mind as you were talking was like circumcision. You do that Sharpie exercise with the, the Jewish people for 2000 years. And yeah. that the top of the list is circumcision. And then, along comes Paul and Paul's like, okay, so what if maybe not, what if, what if we can just sort of move that to the pencil, you know? And so even within our own religious tradition, there is Josh, and you said this perfectly, there is this pattern of holding things loosely, just hold it loosely, whatever it is, hold it loosely. So I, I loved that, that Sharpie idea. Yeah. Classic 38 special uh, 1970s rock line. Hold on loosely. If you don't know that, you know, just Spotify 38 special greatest hits. Just that little tip will take you through the rest of the week. Um, listen mm. to 38 special music. All right. So, so one of the things I want to also talk with you guys about is there's a lot of pressure when someone leaves the conservative Christianity or evangelical Christianity, and they're, they're told that they're no longer in the faith. You guys experience that. Anyone who Googles you will experience that. Anyone who searches YouTube videos about progressive Christianity, you both show up as people spending a lot of time deconstructing your work. Uh, congratulations on that. That's, that's a, that's a real sign of something um, uh, th that's been going on for a long time. Uh, you know, deconstruction is uh, a thing that's been going on for a long time. Back in the late 1990s, I helped organize an event where a bunch of faith leaders went to a thing with Jacques Derrida and a theologian named Jack Caputo on deconstruction in a nutshell. And we were working hard on postmodern deconstructionism and how it applies. And then, then no one cared about deconstructionism. Now it's back in flavor again, mostly because a bunch of negative results or negative critiques about deconstruction have been coming up. And so we know there's a lot of people who are going through the very process you all went through. So the pressure to when you leave conservatism or evangelicalism is really defined. It's also not easy to reclaim yourself in the progressive spaces, right? That's, that's not, because that is equally as undefined. Like part of the reason I still identify as an evangelical and a progressive one is, well, partly I don't want to concede evangelicalism to conservatives. It's not. There was a hostile takeover that took place, uh, and I just refused to to give 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 it over to the, the theological Calvinistic terrorists. I don't want that to happen. But also because I want conservatives to have to claim their conservativeness. So by claiming oneself to be a progressive evangelical, you're staking a claim that there's other kinds, and you happen to be another kind. Because I just think it's it's helpful that way. When you get in the progressive spaces, though, it's equally as undefined. It's hard to hard to know uh, when you're there. Do you each remember when you started referring to yourself as a progressive and when you did it? Uh, and I'll just say one more thing about this. Some of us were creating a, an emerging church movement back in the late 1990s, late 1990s, early 2000s. And then the conversation was about, you know, where somebody is in an emerging kind of faith that is pretty well just transitioned into progressive language. So I kind of remember when I 
started referring to myself as a progressive, which meant something different than just a liberal pastor. I thought, you know, I like the word progress a lot. Um, so I remember when I started using that term for myself. Do you remember when you started using that term? And how did you feel when you were placing yourself now in a sociological, cultural space called progressive Christianity? Well, I was reading all the books and aware of all the conversations about the emerging church and was caught up in that as well. But I think where I first learned the language of progressive was in a book by Marcus Borg. And um, he, he just said progressive Christian. And I was like, oh, that's the thing I think. That, and it just resonated immediately. He's like, oh, that's the thing we're doing. Like it's, we're, we're ever evolving, we're changing, we're growing, this thing is going somewhere. And I think that it would, that would have probably been, you know, in the mid 2000s, early 2010s, somewhere around there, that, that language first, when I first started using it publicly, it was a little bit later, and then realized that sometimes people didn't know what it meant. Like some people would call churches progressive, and um, that I would talk to just because they did like contemporary, like Hillsong and that type of music, <laughs> they would call a church progressive. And I was like, that ain't it. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, pretty quickly though, as I would begin to describe what I meant by the word, that's when people would be like, Oh, so you're talking about something else. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And so that would have been, you know, around that time it was, it, it just felt natural and normal. It was like putting on a glove in some ways like, Oh yeah, that's exactly what I want to be a Christian who is progressing, who is learning, growing, changing, and who's always open to that experience. Yeah. The first time I remember using it, uh, Doug, I was working at the aforementioned church in Arizona, the one uh, where I was fired at, and I was in charge of website design and creation. And when it came to the About Us page, I <laughs> described our church as a progressive church. Uh, this would have been like 2008 or 2009, completely ignorant and naive to really what that meant. I don't remember where I came across it, but I thought our church kind of was because we were really into um, some of the social justice movements at the time, like racial discrimination was really important to us. And there was a part of our mission work that was like really, so the part of me like felt like, oh, this term describes us. And then like mm -hmm. a week later, I get this email from one of the important family members at the church, you know, the ones who gave the most money, just irate. Like, we are not progressive. And then I learned like, oh, that's the word that's sort of been attached to some of the Obama presidency and movement. And that has a whole different connotation that I didn't really mean yeah. for it to have. So that webpage got edited pretty quickly. Um, but then it was pretty much after I got fired from that church that I settled into this as a, as a comfortable uh, and at least close enough description of my kind of Christianity. Uh, I don't know that it's it's not perfect by any means, but it at least gets someone in the ballpark of sort of having some sense of how I uh, hold myself and, and conduct myself. And for me, it, it sort of, and Josh, you alluded to this, progressive, I use it in the uh, adjectival sense and in the verb sense. So mm -hmm. verb, to be a progressive Christian is someone who is sort of ha has this deep conviction that our best days are still ahead of us, right? That we, there is still growth and transformation and evolution like that as part of the whole thing uh, to, to progress. Um, and then in the adjectival sense as a way, a shorthand way to say, look, I'm a Christian who uh, affirms the beloved dignity of queer people. I am a Christian who believes that uh, men and women are equal and there's not some sort of like hierarchy within that. Uh, I'm someone who 
who uh, you can you can be- assume has a sense that science is a friend on the journey to spiritual discovery, not a foe, right? Uh, and someone who also uh, number four has this awareness that there is a, 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 a at least within America a a racial problem <laughs> that we yeah. have a, a country that was founded upon some pretty uh, racist ideas and principles and tend to root that out. So when I use progressive, it's kind of this shorthand way of saying, you know, it, progressive means more than that to some people. Uh, and a lot of it I don't really subscribe to, but it at least is a shorthand way to describe the, the kind of Christian that I, uh, that I try to conduct myself as. Yeah, that's so helpful. And that sociological space we find ourselves in means a lot. I think that's a great list too, Colby. And as you were going through it, I was thinking about like in the late 1800s and early 1900s, there's whole movements um, that have now become very theologically conservative, but were very egalitarian, included women, were very much against race uh based slavery and understood its damage and saw it leaking into society much more broadly and spoke very aggressively against it. We're very much connected to the new science movements of the early mm-hmm. 1900s. And, and, and so back then that didn't make, I mean, it, it, it made you a sort of a person of the age, mm. but those denominations have now become theologically conservative. I only raised that sort of, you know, brief little thumbnail history to just remind us that these social constructs, uh, they're, they're only so good, right? Whether you're conservative or progressive or evangelical or mainline or Lutheran or Episcopalian, but that's all we've got. Like we live in a world where we have to use language and we have to use words and we might as well. And they're, they're always going to be an ill-fitting outfit. You know, they're never going to be as good as your skin. They're always going to be a covering over the top of it. So we live inside those words. They don't, they're not really us. Of course, we all, we all know and understand that, but that sociological power that exists there, it's real. And part of the reason I want to do the conversation with, with you two and have the three of us be on here together is that I wanted people to know and to hear from white male pastors that they're also identify as progressive. One of the things a lot of us have learned and we've all worked hard on is that too much of the space has been taken up by white male pastors in our world and in our life. And so we're having to negotiate that and we're having to figure out how the default goes to people who look and sound like we do and are responded to the way the way we are. And, you know, you two are stunningly attractive white male pastors. We're we're all <laughs> tall men. Like if you get around us. We carry that sort of ethos, right? That people just grant something to. Uh, and we've all noticed it, right? It's not like like we didn't know. You know, some people are like, well, I don't know. Maybe, maybe white men don't know how it works. Like, oh, white men know how it works. Like, there's, there's no doubt that we know how it works. So we're having to work also very open-eyed and intentionally about that. And once you find yourself in these spaces that are taking the social conditions seriously and realizing that so much is granted to white male power leadership, that's something that, I mean, I know is constantly, not in the back of my head, it is constantly the lens through which I'm trying to think about how I conduct myself publicly and interpersonally in the world that I live in. And it's not easy. You know, it's it's really, uh, it's hard to navigate that well. Uh, I don't know if we've ever, if we've ever talked publicly about this, so I, I don't know how you're all, you're all thinking about it, but how, how does that strike you and how are you thinking about, about the, those issues? Yeah, I, I think about them all the time. 
Right. Because I recognize that when I show up, um, I represent just in who I, who I am in the world, I represent kind of part of the problem. Right. Um, so I try to live with an awareness of it. I try to, uh, ensure that it's uh, something I'm continually working on and exploring and how do we center other voices that aren't voices like mine? How do we make sure that, um, I am, uh, even in what I'm reading and, and wrestling with, I'm trying to read authors now who are coming from other perspectives other than just a white, even progressive male perspective. And so I think uh, also listening to people, uh, listening to people share their experiences, listening to people sort of uh, being open to correction when I say something or do something or even accidentally show up in the world in a way that is problematic. Um, so I think part of the problem is we've created, you know, this role of pastor, like we were talking about earlier, created this role of pastor. And then it's sort of untouchable in the sense that like there, there is no room for, Hey, that, that wasn't a great way to do that. Or, Hey, when you said that, that came off or, you know, um, Hey, that, that way you're trying to approach this really is going to be harmful. Um, and so I, I want to just make sure I'm open to that, that, uh, that I'm listening and receiving it and, and adjusting how I show up in the world um, while also trying to share um, what, in whatever, whatever small platform I have, be able to share that with other voices who are saying really important things that come from a space that I don't occupy and come from shoes that I don't walk in. Um, but I, I think this is a, a really, really important, I would say it's not just important. It's a, it's a vital conversation and it's a vital piece of the work we have in front of us I think I mean uh, I don't know that I have much or any to add Josh you said it so well I, I kind of just co-sign on on that you know you touched on you touched on the greatest hits which are the yeah. things that we are are trying to embody and and practice and talk about um, you know diversifying the our ingestion of resources and the diversification of um, our teams and um, trying to be conscious and mindful of when in this is this moment asking me to completely remove myself or is this moment asking me to leverage the influence and the access that I have and the resources that I have for the sake of elevating others or for partnership or collaboration like uh, all, all of that, I think, are the things that, um, at least for me, were not on my radar 10 years ago, and they are now, and I, I hope I have shown a modicum of improvement. I just am not always sure. Like, I think yeah. the biggest thing that's coming up for me in this is um, I can't do better than my best, and I feel like I'm doing my best, and I'm still conscious that that's often not enough. And it's not always, it's rarely obvious to me what the situation is asking you know, of, of the different sort of scenarios of, mm -hmm. of when do we withdraw? When do we partner? When do we elevate? Um, the, anyone who suggests that there's just one of those solutions that you should do all the time, I'm wary of uh, because it just doesn't feel that, that clean cut to me. So I think that at the end of the day, Doug, what I, I think I'm going to be the most good to the most people, which by the way, is not to all people. I can't, I can't, I can't embody progressivism perfectly for all people because mm -hmm. it doesn't, that doesn't, there isn't a, a monolith within the progressive space. <laughs> there are a plurality of ideas and ways to approach this. Yeah. So you can't sort of do it one way and then get it right. You're going to, you're going to piss off 
versions of progressive people. Uh, it's just how it is. So I think the way that I can do the most good for myself and for the people that I care about most, which is my wife and my children and my family and my immediate sort of friend group. Uh, and then outside that, the way that I can be at best use is to show up to myself fully and wholly and with humility and try to just live my best empowered uh, life. And that's when I think I can hopefully be, be the best regardless of then how the situation in life might, might ask me to show up. Yes. That's so well said guys. It's, it's just hard. You know, it is, uh, if anything's written in Sharpie, it seems to me, love one another should be one of those Sharpie things, right. That sort of finds its way. And I just feel like that's a, that's a continuous notion, but what that looks like and feels like and how that's experienced by different people, that's really hard. It is hard to love one another. And it's hard to lead in ways that are good and right and healthy and uh, full of compassion and, and grace uh, with and for one another, you know, and sort of and sort of what we're what we're up to. One of the reasons I think this matters a lot and the reason that I do the work we do at Vote Common Good of trying to help like we do political work, trying to move evangelical and white Catholic faith voters to consider voting for people that they don't typically vote for. The, the reason for that is. It, we're not like just doing self-help work to try to have people help people have a better political mindset. Some of it has to do with the idea that there's just so many people who experience the world through an evangelical or conservative religious lens and a conservative Catholic lens. You're talking somewhere 70 million to 100 million people in the United States. And there are so many people who are just being indoctrinated into an evangelical perspective of Christianity they got to go somewhere and they're going to do something. They kind of have to find somewhere, you know, to, to go. Um, so now that I'm not working in a church and I do this other work, which feels very pastoral like, uh, but it's different. I, I can kind of conjure up a notion for what we're up to and what success would look like. I'm interested from you, each of you in our last couple of minutes here. How do you think about that? What, what what does uh, what does like I don't know for Grace Point or for your role as a pastor Josh or at um, you, you know what 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 you're doing uh, Colby um, whether it's in the church or in your books and writing or you YouTube channel um, uh, like what does success at Sojourn Grace Collective look like uh, how how do you how how are you guys thinking about it? Josh how how what do you do with something about like I don't know is this working <laughs> is it uh, you know do, do you think about it at all or, and how do you think about it. So uh, can I back up and say one thing real quick that Colby like spurred me to think about for this last piece? Uh, I think one of the things that I have to continually remind myself of, and I think it's important for all of us in this space to remind ourselves of, we haven't arrived. What I mean is um, like having ideas of equity and equality don't by de facto make us equitable and equal. Like wanting to, you know, saying patriarchy is wrong doesn't actually end up making women equal in our movement. So, uh, you know, caring about issues around race that doesn't make us automatically equal. So I, I just think it's important to have that in the frame. Um, as far as what I, you know, what do I think success is, you know, it, it's, it's really shifted for me because I, I knew how to measure success as an evangelical conservative pastor. Um, how many people are showing up and how much money are they throwing in the offering plate? 
Um, and you know, how many people are going through such a roller coaster of emotions every week that they don't know whether they're coming or going when they leave us. Um, did the fog machine work right? You know, those are the important questions I used to ask. The questions I ask now are more, um, more geared toward like my hermeneutic. The thing I, the lens I try to see things through is the lens of human flourishing. And so as a community, are we helping people flourish? Are we helping people take the steps and, and participate in their own transformation so that they then want to participate in the transformational world of the world around them? Are, are people coming in and uh, feeling seen? Is, are they feeling known? Do they feel like somebody finally has listened to their story and has had empathy for their story? You know, are we, are we helping give people back something that's been taken from them, but in a way that is no longer wounding, but is perhaps healing. Um, when I think about our work, that's what I'm thinking about. You know, how well are we, do, are we doing that? Are we leading people to the place where they can flourish in their own spirituality, knowing that it's going to look different than mine? Like to, to our earlier conversation, my goal is not to turn out a community full of me because that would be unbearable. What I hope to do is, is to help people realize that the permission you've been seeking, you don't need, you already have it. Yeah. Um, and, and it's our, our job, I think, is, as community leaders to then create the context through which they realize they have that permission and that they can go on and begin to experience human flourishing and be a part of their transformation, the transformation of everybody and everything around them. That's great. Colby, how about you? Do you have a way that you're thinking about, I don't know, what you're up to, what you're, what you're doing, what it would look like if it felt like you did it? Yeah. So, you know, a lot of our communities are, are, are similar in a lot of ways, Josh, yours and mine. So unsurprisingly, I, I, I share those sentiments of having to sort of retool and rethink our metrics. Like, you know, success isn't necessarily a church that outlives me as its founder, because I think that plays into this idea that things that are successful is equivalent to things that last forever. <laughs> like, like that, uh, that's the only way we know how to think about it. But if a thing exists only for a year or two, that could be really successful. Like anyway, so I think for me, how I'll respond to this, uh, Doug, is to just say that our our vision statement is um, fostering spiritual, social, and emotional wholeness. Hmm. And so we know we are sort of moving in that direction when uh, people report back to us experiencing. So emotional wholeness might look like a reintegration of parts of themselves that they have previously severed welcoming back home um, parts of, of who they are that they might have previously um, cloaked in shame or rejected uh, because other messages told them they couldn't be that. But if they begin to reintegrate and, and love all the parts of themselves, that's a kind of emotional wholeness. Um, spiritual wholeness might be um, being a soft landing place for people who have been harmed by the church, who have left uh, conservative evangelicalism in a blaze of glory, who are in this sort of massive deconstructive space and don't know, they just need a soft landing place. And Sojourn provides that for so many people. Like our, our back door, honestly, is as big as our front door uh, yeah. because so many people come and they get the kind of healing and the wholeness that they need. They need to sort of reshift their ideas about God, reshift their ideas about themselves as not this depraved being that God cannot be in the presence of, but as like a beloved child of God. And they get to a point where they're like, oh, you're right. I don't have to go to church in order to make God happy with me. Cool. Thanks. I'm out. You know, like, okay, yeah. good, good. Um, bless you as you go. Uh, and then uh, uh, 
what was uh, social wholeness is is the connection between one another. Are we are we creating authentic um, relationships where people are showing up in vulnerability and honesty? Are we advocating for the marginalized in our community? Are we working to uh, restore injustices? Are we, so are we trying to put the fabric of our social um, reality move, move it back towards wholeness? So. Hmm. If if we hear any stories or if we see any movement towards wholeness in any of those three things, I think oh, freaking a, I'm so glad we exist. Right, that's right. Yeah. Any yeah. movement toward yeah. the positive on any of those. Um, <laughs> when, when I was at Solomon's Porch, I'd hear people say all the time, "Boy, I wish there was a church like yours where I live." But there's all nothing the like that around, right? All the time. Now yeah. that I am not involved there, I think the same thing. I'm like. Yeah, I, I wish that you know. I wish there was a church like like Grace Point or Sojourn Grace, uh, you know, that around here that I could go. I could go to. I know a lot of people feel that way, um, and I know both of you feel very grateful that you have a community you can be involved in, and you don't you don't take that lightly. The pandemic created a set of conditions by which people have started to engage with churches in places where they don't live, and I know both of you have experienced that and are figuring that out, you know, what will that look like in a post pandemic age? And, you know, for some people they can manage that through a computer screen or a phone screen. Uh, other people just are gonna be like, yeah, I kind of need the analog version of, of all this. Uh, but can you just say something about that, wh where you are now, both of you in your, in your communities of how people can be involved if they can't yet relocate to San Diego or, you know, can't yet afford to, to live in the up, up and coming areas around Nashville, uh, how can they be involved with y'all? So we experienced a lot of uh, new relationships through being online only during the pandemic. And that has actually grown since we've been back in person. It's been really neat to watch. Um, you know, we have people who uh, once we restarted in-person gatherings who would fly in from different corners of the U S meet and stay at a host home and then come to a gathering at Grace Point. Uh, we also, the interesting thing, because um, we're thinking about, you know, how do we provide care? How do we provide, you know, meaningful community? So we have online care groups that meet. So people from all over the country and world are getting together, you know, um, regularly and, and experiencing uh, connection that way. And we also are starting to see people in like, so we have, let's say we have a pocket of people in uh, Birmingham, Alabama. Um, some of them are starting to get together. I know this happens in Lawrence, Kansas too. People are starting to get together and and experience grace points gathering online together all in, so it's like a it's a it's an in-person experience of the online gathering if that makes sense mm -hmm. um and they're forming their own little community and eating together and and beginning to form relationships together so we're, we're trying to figure out how do we how do we um encourage that how do we support that without trying to manage that or over uh, put too much on it that sort of takes away what makes it mm -hmm. actually work. Right. So that sort of our vision is like, how do we, how do we do that? How do we make sure people are finding the care they need? How, how do we make sure that we're providing opportunities for people to be in meaningful? And cause I would have been one of those people who told you before the pandemic that, that virtual isn't or online or whatever, isn't real community and it isn't meaningful. But when that's all you have, it actually is. It really is, um, we found over the last couple of years. And so just want to provide a space. And we hear that all the time from people like, there's nothing around me. Yeah. Um, and, and finding this has been kind of a lifesaver. And so I'm, I'm, the, the pandemic has been terrible, horrible. And yet I'm grateful that this 
it forced our hand a little sooner than we had planned to be doing online things. And so I'm grateful for the people we've met and the people who have dramatically shaped our community as a result of that. Colby, every Sunday around noon, my time, my watch buzzes me and says sojourn grace is now live somehow i have signed up for the live updates on facebook uh from there and so once a week i'm like wow there's another church i'm not going to on a regular basis uh but uh so you obviously are are doing that are you are are there ways that people who live elsewhere are involved at sojourn grace yeah so we we went live right when the world or america shut down back in march 2020 and when a lot of churches went to like a, a pre-recorded, right, which makes sense, they pre-recorded and then they sort of just press play on Sunday, makes makes sense for all sorts of reasons. Um, we were fortunate enough to have the kind of space and the kind of resources and at least my um, know-how with enough technological, coupled with my instincts, which were we have to we have to keep some sort of connection here. It has to be, it has to, people have to feel like they're connecting with me and Kate and the musicians. And so we have really over the last two and a half years uh, poured a lot of um, our time and energy into creating a live virtual um, experience that, that people feel seen and connected and a part of. And it has really been a, an incredible experiment. It's been an incredible experiment. And in many ways, I think about like, this is one of my most connective points to the Apostle Paul, who I think was just a, a great church plant experimenter. Like he had no idea what he was doing. He just had this ideas and had this vision and had this sense that maybe we could do these communities, these diverse communities in this fashion after this way. Had no sense if it was going to work or not, just experimented. And I think that is kind of the place we're in right now. Church will most likely never be the same that it, that it used to be. And there's some sadness to that. There's some grief to that, 100%. And there is possibility for experimentation of what what could be. Uh, and or we just say that was a good 2,000-year ride and you know now it's time to move on to something else. I don't totally know. But for us, we last fall, we tried to go back to in-person. We tried to have an in-person service that still connected our live. Because, Doug, our, our live service, we have people tune in from all around the world. I've, I've come to affectionately uh, refer to them as our oopsie baby. Like, we mm, mean to nice. make this baby, but they exist now. And we can't just be like, okay, now back to our regularly scheduled, you know, uh, children that we meant to have and goodbye. Like, we need to figure... So we tried last fall to do a combination of in-person and live and didn't work really well. And then Omicron wave hit and we're like, all right, let's just shut this thing back down and go back online. So we have been online only for all of 2022, but starting in July, our plan is to both and it. So we are going to continue doing our live stream virtual services, 10 a.m. Pacific on YouTube and Facebook. Uh, and then Sunday night, we're going to start an evening uh, in-person gathering on Sundays at 5 p.m. Uh, so this could be the best idea or this could be the worst idea. I don't really know. Well, we're going to try to do both and for a while and and reintegrate people who really are longing for the the fleshy in-person touch. Because a lot of our, most of our families, and that was most of what Sojourn was, was, was young families. Like virtual doesn't work for them. Their kids aren't going to, whatever. Yeah. It's just lost all that. So they're sort of jonesing to get back in together where their kids have a place to be and they can sort of see and touch each other. So that's happening in July. Um, but 
even then we'll continue to do our virtual live services on Sundays. Well, uh, congratulations to both of you for, for pulling that off at all. Uh, I, I, it happened in the timing of my life was that I left my role at Salmon's Porch in January of 2020. And then months later, this happened. I don't know that I could have done it. Um, if I'd, you know, if I was still there at that point, I, it just would have been extremely difficult. And you guys have both done it so, so well. So congratulations on that. And thanks. Thanks for this great conversation. Anything else either of you wanted to talk about or ask about or say or anything before we call it a day? I, th I think the last thing I'll add is that if there's anybody who's watching this, who feels like they're just not sure they can hang on to their version of Christianity anymore. I guess I just want to say that makes sense. Like you're, you're not, you're not alone in that. It's hard. It's hard, especially if you live in parts of the world where so much of what it means to be Christian looks nothing like you and it resembles yeah. nothing about your internal world. And so it makes all the sense in the world to just wake up one morning and be like, I think that season, I think that part of my life is over. I just want to, I want to affirm that because this is, it's, it's hard. Um, and maybe there'll come a day down the road where you find within yourself a small spark of curiosity of, is there a way maybe to connect with the divine that has some touch point to this tradition that, if I'm being honest, I still am kind of drawn to, it's, or at least it's in my body. It's been in me for so long that I can't fully get it out. I guess what I want to say is if that day ever comes for you, know that there, there is a way to do it. Hmm. There is a way to be a person who follows in the way of Jesus, who is connected to a community of people with similar uh, values and faiths. And there's a way to do it with integrity that matches um, what you know to be true about the world and what you know to be true about yourself. Mm. It's out there. That's great. Josh, any last thoughts? I, I would just add that to those people Colby was just speaking to, um, there's not something wrong with you. It's not because you just haven't believed hard enough or tried hard enough. What you're going through is real. It's not necessarily a journey you chose, but it's a journey that has, has uh, you have been invited and pulled into. And so just know uh, that you are doing and pursuing perhaps people are saying to you you're leaving you're leaving faith and you're leaving god and it actually could be this is the journey that's actually you pursuing those things um there will be lots of voices who try to guilt and shame you but you are following the inner voice you're trusting yourself maybe and lots of us grew up being taught not to trust ourselves or to trust the inner voice um but perhaps it's the thing that's saving your life right now and, and know that there are people and places and contexts that will celebrate you, hold space for you, not try to make you conform. Um, so that if you choose to seek community in a Christian sense, that there are places out there that will embrace you and make space for you. So well said. You know, I, I know all three of us still use the Bible. Uh, it still mean we've found a way to keep it and to actually it's better for me than it ever was. You know, it's like my marriage is better now than, than it was, uh, you know, 30 years ago. And my view of the Bible is better now than it was 30 years ago. And actually what you both described there in this whole conversation, if you were to read the Bible through that lens, that's actually what you start seeing, right? From yeah. the Genesis, yeah. leaving the Garden of Eden narrative, right through the Exodus stories, and then the nation of Israel stories, and then the Jesus being the classic one of you've heard it said, but I say to you, 
I mean, try throwing that to a conservative sometimes. Like, you know, uh, <laughs> it's it's as easy as you get. And then, as you mentioned, you know, the the, the apostle followers, Paul and others who, who are doing this thing in real time, like that's been the story all along. And all of those people have met the same kinds of resistance that have that have come up. You know, uh, you think of when Peter goes into the house of Cornelius and has this amazing experience of life transformation for everyone, and then is called back to Jerusalem, and the people in Jerusalem say, "Did you go into the house of a Gentile?" <laughs> right? And he says, "Now I see that God doesn't show favoritism." Peter yeah. says, "Now, not not after life with Jesus, and after all the other things, the story of the of the Book of Acts is that only after entering into the house of a place he wasn't supposed to go does he then say, "Now I see that God doesn't." show favoritism so that's been the arc the the, the story the stories of the, of the jewish and christian scriptures are crafted to accompany people on this journey i'm not trying to push the bible on people who don't want it but if it's still lingering around there colby and josh and people that they listen to are people that it's worth letting them be your your docent for a while on a on an art gallery experience through the bible to uh, see these things. Colby, you have two books out. Josh, you have a book coming out. It's on all this. So we'll we'll put stuff in the, as they say on YouTube, we'll put that in the show notes. And speaking of YouTube, if you're watching this there, thank you. There's a subscribe button down there. Go click it. Uh, and then log out and log back in with another made-up email address and click it again. <laughs> uh, uh, or we, just want, we don't want you to ever be logged into YouTube and not be subscribed to us. So in all of your identities, whoever you are in the world, and if you're watching this on Facebook or on Twitch or on Twitter or those places, head on over to YouTube. We'd love that too. We're, we're making our presence over there much more extensive than it has before. There's also a podcast version of this. So if you have friends that don't want video, you just want to send them a podcast, that'll be up uh, up later today. So Josh, Colby, appreciate your friendship so much and your leadership and thanks for all that you've meant to, to me and to the movement that i feel like i'm a part of and really great chatting with you today thanks buddy love you all good right. to see you love you i guess hey uh thanks, we'll Sean. talk to you all tomorrow i think we're uh, dan are we on with the astrophysicist paul wallace tomorrow like if you think this is great wait till the reverend pastor astrophysicist professor paul wallace gets a hold of you <laughs> That I'm hoping. I'm hoping. And Birder. And Birder, Paul Wallace. So I think we're on with an astrophysicist, uh, Paul Wallace, tomorrow. So Yeah, because we got right. a lot to talk about. There's There was a whole public hearing about UFOs yesterday that we got to get into. So Oh, my goodness. Yes. And, and Admitting that there's UFOs now. So I don't know. Really? The yeah. government? The government. They had a whole hearing. They're like, hey, yeah, we don't know what these flying spheres are so maybe paul wallace does they're lying Last about that they know what it is this is a great cover-up they know what it is <laughs> see now the cover-up is they do know and they're not telling us that's yep. the new that's the new cover-up hey you know who really wanted to let that out uh it was really going to lean into that uh hillary clinton and john podesta one of little often not known one of the things that hillary clinton was super in was declassifying all of that area 51 business and all that stuff really? they're full seriously into it they're like this is crazy that the united states government covers this stuff up let's get it out there and if you ever wondered how trump became president there it is uh, the that's why prevented it yep because deep area 51 stuff but anyway uh yeah so we'll talk about that tomorrow and you know this is the the, the range of things that is this ridiculousness of our of our <laughs> daily podcast and live streams all right thanks guys we'll talk to y'all later bye-bye thanks